right, good morning. My name is Dwayne, and welcome to Directional Bible Ministries, a teaching ministry that is designed to encourage, disciple, and challenge the people of God. Uh, today is August the 23rd, and we are continuing to work our way through the book of Acts. Um, last time we were together, we actually did session 27, and of course, as you know, uh, throughout the weekday, 15-20 minutes each day, we're working our way through uh, the book verse by verse. And then on Sunday mornings at 9 o'clock, we put it all together. So last Sunday morning uh, was session 27, and we looked at chapter 15, verses 12 through 31. And as I've shared before, all of my notes are on the website. Uh, directionalministries.blogspot.com. You can also get there, DwayneSpearman.org. Um, and then also the audio studies are listed there from SoundCloud, starting with session one introduction, all the way down to each one of the sessions. And then also the video studies, they're just quick links there instead of going to YouTube. Uh, you can actually go to the blog, the website, and you can find everything there as well. So anyway, all kind of laid out for you. Um, so what we're going to do today is we're going to pick up with the Jerusalem Council, where we left off last week at verse number 31. I'll read just a little bit for context. Not much. Um, we're going to be working our way through... Um, chapter 1532 through chapter 16, verse number 31 together. So, um, so let's go ahead and say a word of prayer and we'll get started. Father, we love you and do thank you for your goodness. Thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather around your word. Thank you for the week that you've given to us, Lord. You know the needs of every heart, uh, every person that is represented here and will be here. And Father, I just pray that you would open our eyes to see and ears to hear and our hearts to understand in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Hope you're doing well. Let's see. Jerusalem Council, Acts chapter number 15. As you know, Paul had worked his way. Um, <clears throat> the church at Antioch, after he'd come back from his first missionary journey, had recommended that Paul and Barnabas make their way down to Jerusalem to explain the revelation. Uh, some translations say by revelation, but either way, he was coming to Jerusalem to explain what was going on among the Gentiles. And of course, um, of course, this needed to be explained because bear in mind, the apostles themselves were not going to the Gentiles like Paul was called to the Gentiles. Why? Because the apostles were not called to the Gentiles. They were called to the house of Israel, exclusively to the house of Israel at this point. Um, now, had they accept, had the house of Israel had, have accepted the kingdom message that they were preaching, God would have used them to reach the Gentiles during the kingdom, uh, but they didn't. So uh, we've been trying to get our minds around that and understand that and reprogram ourselves because that is not explicitly taught in the church today. It's just all convoluted and thrown in with... Uh, without any right division. And that's what we've been working on together for the past several months as we've been working our way through the book of Acts. So in Acts chapter 15, he comes down, they're at the Jerusalem Council. Uh, and of course, there's, uh, there's all kinds of questions in regards to whether or not these new Gentile believers needed to be circumcised and fall under the law of Moses. And that what, that's what prompted the meeting. And, of course, there was no small dissension and disputation with them. I mean, there was a lot of disagreement between the apostles and the elders about this question. And then, of course, uh, what's interesting is that Peter was the first to raise up and say, Men and brethren, you know by my mouth, you know, uh, years before how God used me to go to Cornelius. So it shouldn't surprise us that the gospel has indeed been taken to the Gentiles. Cornelius and his house were Gentiles. We know that. And of course, Peter begins to explain uh, what God did among Cornelius and his house. And then all the multitude kept silence and Barnabas and Paul 
began to share how God was doing miracles and wonders among the Gentiles by them. And then, of course, that's when James stood up. James was seems to be the moderator of the meeting. This is the half-brother of Jesus, the writer of the epistle of James. And he begins to review what God has done uh, through Peter. Calls him Simeon here. Uh, he was called Simon Peter. And he begins to point out in the Old Testament that the Old Testament does indeed have prophecies. He begins to go back to the book of Amos to show that the gospel was indeed going to go to the Gentiles eventually. Um, and he says in verse 18, known unto God are all of his works from the beginning of the world. In other words, God knows what is what he's doing. His will is going to be done, uh, whether it be through the apostles ourselves or through Paul. And then he says, wherefore my sentence is. And he begins to tell them that uh, we don't need to trouble these Gentiles that are turned to God. But there are a few things that he calls um, burdens or necessities that he believes the Gentiles need to stay away from. And, um, and we've talked about those things. So um, those things were, you know, eating food that had been sacrificed to idols, uh, eating the blood, uh, things that are strangled and stay away from fornication. And we've already talked about how the reason he wanted these things was they would be a stumbling block to their Jewish brethren. Even though the Gentiles themselves were, were not uh, under the law, they needed to, out of, out, of, out of concern for the scruples of the weak, as Paul talks about over in the book of Romans, uh, they just need to stay away from these things lest there cause some contention between the Jewish and the Gentile believers. And we've worked our way uh, through that. In verse 28, for it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than the necessary things. And there they are uh, that they needed to stay away from. And when they were dismissed, they came to Antioch. Now this is Antioch. Uh, where the church was, and when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the epistles. So they delivered the results as written down by the council at Jerusalem to the church in Antioch, which was both a Jewish and a Gentile church. And when they had read, they rejoiced for the consolation. In other words, they were ecstatic um, that uh, they didn't have to be circumcised. <laughs> That's a reason for rejoicing. Um, and that they did not have to fall under the law, the Mo law of Moses, as was determined by the council at Jerusalem. Now we pick up our text today, and, and Judas and Silas, in verse number 32, being prophets also themselves, exhorted the brethren uh, with many words and confirmed them. Now, notice it says Judas and Silas. Now, Judas and Silas were kingdom believers that were sent out by the church at Jerusalem to accompany Paul and Barnabas back to Antioch. And it appears that their sole purpose was to confirm the things that had been written or the things that had been decided by the Jerusalem council. In other words, they didn't just have to take Paul and Barnabas's word for it. They actually had emissaries from the Jerusalem church to confirm the things that Paul and Barnabas were saying. And it says here that they being prophets also themselves. This is clearly comparing them to the last prophet spoken of in verse number 15, which is Amos. Uh, because that was the last prophet spoken about by James at the council. So they, being prophets also themselves, exhorted the brethren with many words and confirmed them. Remember, these two sent along with Barnabas to confirm everything that was determined by the council. So it's obvious that there were prophets at this time, at least in this early stage of the church. However, I believe, and I may part company with, with people over this, I believe that... <clears throat> This office of prophet is no longer today. Now, that doesn't mean you can't prophesy today. I'm just saying the office is no longer today. Just as I would say the office of apostle is no longer for today, but you can still do the work of an apostle today. Uh, the apostles were the ones that laid the foundation for the church. We would see these in church planters and missionaries today. So the function... Um, may still be today, but certainly I do not believe the office because no one meets the requirements that were laid out to be an apostle, as we saw at the beginning of Acts 1, at the choosing of Matthias. Um, so, 
Now, some would, would argue that while these offices are closed, their functions are fulfilled in the missionary and the pastor. And we talked about Ephesians chapter 11, talks about the five ministry gifts. You have the apostle, <clears throat> the prophet, the evangelist, the pastor, the teacher. Um, the apostle is fulfilled through the missionary. The prophet is fulfilled through um, the, the, the pastor teacher today. And again, there's two different, the word prophecy can mean to foretell or to foretell. Uh, I believe the pastor teacher today foretells the word of God, not foretells the word of God. Uh, so there's a difference. Um, <clears throat> then notice in verse number 33, and after they had tarried there a space, they were let go in peace from the brethren unto the apostles, notwithstanding it pleased Silas to abide there still. Um, bear in mind <clears throat> that their entire function was simply to bear witness to the church of Antioch, the decision that was made by the Jerusalem council. Now that decision, that role has been fulfilled. Judas decides to go back home and Silas decides to stay. Now it seems obvious that Silas had from the next verses that we're going to read had established some type of relationship with the apostle Paul. So he decides to stay. Um, notice verse number 35, Paul also and Barnabas continued in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So now you have Paul and Barnabas and Silas. They're continuing in Antioch. They're preaching and teaching the word of God um, to others also, the Bible says. And some days afterward, Paul said unto Barnabas, let us go again, visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they do. So now after they've been in Antioch for many days, you know, Paul says, you know what? I think it'd be a great idea if we backtracked and visit all the churches that we visited in Asia Minor during our first missionary journey and see how they do. Okay, and then in verse number 37, and Paul thought not good to take him with them. And well, Paul in verse 37, and Barnabas was determined to take John, whose surname was Mark. But Paul thought it not good to take him with them, who departed from them in Pamphylia and went not with them to the work. So uh, in verse 39, and the contention was so sharp between them that they departed asunder one from the other. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus and saw and Paul chose Silas and departed, being recommended by the brethren unto the grace of God and went through Syria and Cilicia, confirming the churches. So for some undisclosed reason, Paul was determined not to take John Mark. Now, we know that John Mark had bailed on them uh, on the first missionary journey in Pamphylia, as the text says, but we don't know why John Mark bailed on them. And any reason that we could possibly give would be totally subjective. We just don't know. He just did not, he went not with them to the work. Uh, it might've been his youth. He was the young one. He might have been afraid. Uh, we don't know, but he just decided not to go. Albert Barnes comments <clears throat> that John Mark was the son of a sister of Barnabas. Uh, so obviously he had an affinity for uh, John Mark more so than Paul would have. But we do know that later they did reconcile um, because in 2 Timothy 4, verse number 11, only Luke is with me. Take Mark and bring him with thee, for he's profitable to me for the ministry. So whatever reason, it was apparently patched up by the time Paul had wrote Timothy. And of course, he's in prison and he's wanting him, wanting John Mark to be brought along for he was profitable to him for the ministry. Now, some have erroneously, in my opinion, said that the fact that Barnabas disappeared from Scripture at this point was a proof that Barnabas was in the wrong here. And I've actually heard whole sermons on usually the sermons are around uh, church division and how you can't disagree with the pastor 
or you're going to disappear. <laughs> God's going to take your anointing away and you're not going to be used of the Lord anymore. And <clears throat> they'll point to the fact that Barnabas disagreed with Paul. Um, well, that's very difficult and dangerous to read into the scripture. Scripture does not say that uh, at all. I mean, <clears throat> you could say that, you know, I mean, Peter disappeared from the scripture uh, after Acts. Uh, after Acts chapter 15 in the Jerusalem Council. That doesn't mean that he did anything wrong. Uh, these are the same ones that would say the choosing of Matthias. You know, Peter messed up when he got ahead of God. And instead of waiting for the Apostle Paul, he chose Matthias to replace Judas. That really Paul should have been the 13th Apostle. Well, anybody that says that, number one, um, I don't think they totally grasp the inerrancy and the infallibility of scripture. And number two, they obviously are having issues with right division. Paul never would have, could have, should have been one of the apostles, one of the 12. He was not qualified to be one of the 12. He had not even been converted at the time they had chosen Matthias and he was never chosen to go to the Jew, but he was set aside to go to the Gentile. He would be the apostle to the Gentiles. Um, so, again, we start questioning scripture. Um, they rightly chose Matthias to replace Judas because they knew that they would sit upon the 12 thrones judging the house of Israel, and that needed to be in place before the second coming, which they felt was imminent at the time. So they weren't going to wait around for Paul. Uh, again, just people don't understand. Now, those are the ones that are the Acts 2 folks that would say that. Uh, the, the loudest, but we've already established that. Um, <clears throat> you know, by that same logic, you know, I mean, there were 12 apostles, but what have we heard of Andrew? What have we heard of Philip? What have we heard of Bartholomew? Now, certainly like uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs and Church History, but in, in the canon of Scripture, I mean, these guys, for all intents and purposes, disappeared. Uh, does that mean that they were not rightly chosen? Um, again, that's, that's just, that's ludicrous to, to make those kinds of assumptions. I believe in the end that Silas was just a good match for Paul. He was just a good match for Paul for that period. Um, and that's why he ended up, uh, going with Paul on his missionary, on his second missionary journey. Cause remember, this was a very unique time in history. Uh, there were both Jews and Gentiles both believing and unbelieving, both serving the Lord together, but under two different programs. So this very unique time in church history, you have Messianic Jews who had accepted the preaching of the kingdom and were looking for the kingdom, sitting in the same pew, if you will, with Gentiles who had accepted the grace gospel as preached by the Apostle Paul. Now, I believe at this unique time, and we'll talk about this a little later, quickly, um, that they were both sitting there looking for the imminent return of Christ. Uh, there is no indication that Paul had been given any revelation beyond that at this point. And we're going to talk about that uh, as we go. So, Silas was a good match. Uh, because Silas was a, a kingdom-believing Jew sent out from the church at Jerusalem. Um, he made a good sidekick, if you will, to the Apostle Paul. Um, so he was a good match. And again, this is another key to interpreting Paul's writings in that he was addressing both of these people groups at the same time. So at, at one moment, he's, he's addressing kingdom-believing Jews, and at another moment, he's addressing grace-believing Jews and Gentiles. Um, so I think it was good to have Silas there along with him representing the Jewish church and the Twelve in Jerusalem. And, of course, I believe, and as I've really you know gotten into what is called mid-Acts uh, dispensationalism as we begin to look at the middle of the book of Acts as where the body of Christ actually began as compared to Acts chapter number two, which is what most uh, dispensationalists would say. Uh, we it, it gets a little fuzzy. You know, when did Paul 
you know, because certainly Paul in the beginning was preaching to Jews. He was preaching a kingdom gospel. That's all he knew. Repent and be baptized for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's all he knew. That's all the apostles knew, you know? Um, so, but at some point, Paul received a revelation about, you know, the, the mystery, the, bo the body, the church, the grace, gospel, just believe only. And so as we're reading the book of Acts, somewhere between chapter 9, chapter number 13, 14, this transition took place in the life of Paul. And he began to preach the grace gospel. Um, and, and, of course, remember, most of the epistles that Paul wrote uh, were written during this time period. Uh, you look at Ephesians and Corinthians, for example, uh, where Paul is obviously going back and forth talking to these two different groups. And we have to pay attention to the audience. Who's he speaking to? And many times, as we've already discussed, it comes down to pronouns, uh, just making sure who he is speaking to. Um, and we've discussed that in previous chapters already. Now, notice in chapter number 16, in chapter number 16, then came he to Derby and Lystra, and a certain disciple was there named Timotheus, the son of a certain woman, which was a Jewish and believed, but his father was a Greek. Just bear in mind that um, he's coming to Derby and to Lystra, and uh, and he's taking and he comes upon Timothy, the son of a certain woman, which was a Jewish and believed, but his father was a Greek, um, <clears throat> which was well reported of by the brethren that were at Lystra and Iconium. So this chapter begins Paul's second missionary journey. Um, and notice that Paul and Silas begin to backtrack his first missionary journey, and he goes to the last place he had visited, which was Derby. And, of course, the proof of that is in Acts chapter number 14. In Acts 14, howbeit as the disciples stood around about him, he rose up. Remember, he was stoned in Lystra, and he came into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derby. And when he had preached the gospel in Derby and had taught many they returned again to Lystra, Iconium, and to, back to Antioch, which is where he was told to go to Jerusalem for the council meeting. Um, so Derby is the last place that he had been. And at some point, he ran into Timotheus. Um, as I stated earlier, Timothy probably came under Paul's teaching during his first missionary journey. Because in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse number 2, he says, Unto Timothy, my son, in the faith, grace and mercy and peace. So when Paul says there, my son, in the faith, it literally means that he is his father in the Lord, which means he led Timothy to the Lord. So, so Timothy apparently came under the teaching of Paul during his first missionary journey. And then notice in verse number 3, him would Paul have to go forth, him being Timothy, with him and took and circumcised him because of the Jews which were in those quarters, for they knew all that his father was a Greek. So he wanted um, Timothy to come along with him. But notice it says here that his mother was a Jew, but his father was a Greek. And Paul went ahead and circumcised Timothy, which seems to fly in the face of everything we've just talked about at the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter number 15, where they were told they didn't need to be circumcised. But the caveat is, this is Timothy. His mother was a Jew. Therefore, people expected him to have been circumcised. Now, had he been just a Gentile? No, Peter wouldn't have forced this on Timothy. But the fact that his mother was a Jew... Paul knew, did I say Peter? Paul knew uh, that people expected him to be circumcised. And if he wasn't, it was going to be a stumbling stone. It was going to be a roadblock. It was going to be an impediment to Paul's ministry as he began to minister to these Jews. Okay. And again, this is another indicator that Paul did have a desire to minister among the Jewish brethren who had already rejected him. But he still, throughout his ministry, had a heart for the Jewish people. In Acts 13, 46, 
you know, and Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said it was necessary that the word of God should have been spoken to you, but seeing you put it from you, you judge yourselves unworthy to everlasting life. Lo, we're going to go to the Gentiles. But at the same time, Paul said, I would be, um, I would go to hell if it meant the salvation of my brethren. Paul still had a tremendous love for the Jewish people. Even in Romans chapter 1, verse number 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone that believes to the Jew first. In other words, not only did the kingdom gospel go to the Jew first, but also the grace gospel went to the Jew first. And then to the Gentile. So Paul just had Timothy, you know, he said, I become all things to all men that I might win some. You know, and he felt that Timothy not being circumcised and everyone knowing that his mother was a Jew would be a problem to the Jews that he was going to minister to. Yeah, they were they were under the law. They were legalist in that regard. So they expected uh, Timothy when they found out that he was a Jew to have been circumcised. So Paul just wanted to get rid of that, you know, make it easy uh, for him to be able to minister with him to the Jews. Um, so. Then notice in verse number four, and as they went through the cities, they delivered them the decrees to keep and that were ordained of the apostles and the elders, which were at Jerusalem. And so were the churches established in the faith and increased daily in number. And that was the whole purpose of the second missionary journey. He was going to backtrack. He was going to visit all the churches that he and he and Barnabas had visited on his first missionary journey. And he was going to encourage them by delivering to them the decrees for to keep that had been ordained of the apostles and the elders during the council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter number 15. Okay. And therefore the churches were established in faith and they increased daily. In other words, they rejoiced that, you know, they did not fall under the law of Moses. They did not need to be circumcised. Um, and again, these were what we call grace churches. Um, in other words, they didn't fall under the, the, the Mosaic law. Um, and then notice in verse uh, number, number six. Well, I do have one final comment that I said here in regards to this. Here we see that they traveled. They shared the decision uh, with the assemblies that were still a mix of kingdom and grace believers. We know that. Uh, remember, unique period in church history where you had kingdom believers and grace believers sitting side by side. And I believe at this point, believing the same thing, uh, probably looking for a tribulation and certainly looking for the imminent return of Christ and the establishment of the kingdom. There is nothing to suggest by Paul that Paul, Paul had received any revelation beyond this at this point. Um, if you can find some, uh, you can certainly uh, share that with me, but I, I, I don't see it. Uh, and we'll talk about this a little further. I'll start digging down a little deeper as we get into this. Now, notice in verse number six. And when they had gone throughout Phrygia and the region of Galatia and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia, after they were come to Mysia, they essayed to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not, told them not to go. And they, passing by Mysia, came down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night, and there stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And after he had seen the vision, immediately he endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. So something crazy is going on here. <laughs> Notice that he wants to go. Um, after he goes through Phrygia in the region of Galatia, he wants to go into Asia. Now, this is talking about Asia proper here. This is where... Uh, the churches of, uh, of Ephesus and Smyrna and, and Thyatira and Laodicea, uh, Philadelphia were. So he wants to go into that area now, but God forbids him and instead tells him, no, I want you to go into Macedonia. He even gave him a vision where he sees uh, a man standing up and saying, come over into Macedonia and help us first is basically what he's saying. Now, the gospel would eventually, like I said, go into this province of Asia because the seven churches of Revelation 
are this that represent this area. Uh, but the Holy Spirit said, no, I want you to go west now. I don't want you to go east. I want you to go west. And as a result of that, he starts heading over into Europe. And this journey would take him to Troas and to Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea and Athens and Corinth, which were all Western churches. So we see that the, the Holy Spirit had a priority for Paul. I want you to go this way first. You know, I wish God would lead us like that today as vividly <laughs> as he did Paul. Uh, sometimes we don't know which way to go, but the Holy Spirit actually came to Paul, gave him a vision and said, I want you to go left. <laughs> I want you to head, or, or yeah, I want you to head toward the west. Now notice in verse number 11, therefore, uh, therefore, in lieu of everything that he just talked about, Loosing from Troas, we came a straight course to Samotracia, and the next day to Neapolis. And from thence, we went to Philippi, which is the chief city of the part of Macedonia. I mean, he went right into the heart of Macedonia, just like he was told to, and a colony. And we were in that city abiding certain days. And on the Sabbath, we went out of the city by the riverside where prayer was wont to be made and we sat down and spake unto the women that had resorted thither. Now, historically, now again, Paul is responding to this vision. I want you to go to Philippi. I mean, I want you to go to Macedonia. And he goes to the heart of Macedonia. He goes to the chief city of Macedonia, which was Philippi. Philippi was a Roman outpost. Historically, a lot of Ro retired Roman soldiers lived there. It was a military city. Okay, a lot of military guys running around. And on the Sabbath day, he goes down by the river where he's heard that there is a group of women praying. Um, now, most likely these women were Jewish, um, uh, but the text doesn't say. But we know that these women, and uh, one of them was Lydia, who we'll find out is from Thyatira, She's down by the river with another group of women, and they're praying. And some will point out, well, why didn't Philippi have a Jewish synagogue? Well, it was predominantly a Gentile place, and there obviously wasn't enough Jews there. Uh, the rules were you had to have 12 Jewish men in order to establish a synagogue someplace. So apparently there were 10 Jewish men. So obviously there wasn't enough Jewish men there to establish the synagogue. So you have these women. Uh, down by the riverside, and they're praying. And notice it says, And a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple, of the city of Thyatira, which worshiped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, and she attended unto the things which were spoken of by Paul. So as Paul begins to speak, a lady from Thyatira named Lydia took notice. She began to listen to what Paul was saying. And then notice it says in verse number 15, And when she was baptized and her household, she besought us, saying, If ye have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and abide there. And she constrained us. So what we see here is that <clears throat> Paul's early ministry, in Paul's early ministry, baptism still played an important role because it was expected, especially among the Jews. But as he gains further revelation from the Lord, he begins to move away from the importance of baptism. As a matter of fact, he begins to play down baptism as he gets further revelations of the Lord. As a matter of fact, he starts making statements like, I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you. Uh, so obviously, if, if Paul's saying, I didn't baptize any of you, I didn't come preaching baptism. You know, obviously it just, it wasn't a priority in Paul's ministry later on. And there's a lot of um, argument to be made there that baptism is not a part of the gospel of grace. Because understand, baptism, the baptism of repentance was preached by John the Baptist, Jesus, and the Twelve as part of the kingdom gospel. You needed to repent and be baptized to be saved. You need to repent and be baptized to be filled with the Holy Spirit. The grace gospel doesn't require repentance or baptism. It simply requires belief. 
and belief alone. So Paul begins to move away from that uh, later on in his epistles, the importance of that. Um, so, and understand at this point, and I find this interesting, that Paul probably had not written any of his, his epistles by this time. His earliest epistles were between 50 and 53, and we're somewhere around 48, 49 at this point in Acts. And it just depends. I, I found out you can find anything you want on the internet. You can prove anything you want on the internet. All you got to do is search long enough and hard enough because there are disagreements. But from the best, what I can put together, reliable sources, Paul hadn't written any of his epistles by this time. Um, so uh, his first ones were written around anywhere between 50 and 53, 54 AD. And I find it interesting that the first epistles that Paul penned were Thessalonians and Galatians. What's interesting there is that Thessalonians was about the confusion around the rapture and the second coming. And Galatians was about the false gospel, which is interesting because, like I said, um, I don't think Paul, Paul in, in the early stages of his ministry, I believe, was still looking for a tribulation and an imminent return of Christ and the establishment of the kingdom. But obviously, by the time we get into Thessalonians, First and Second Thessalonians, he's starting to see a rapture here. Uh, he's starting to see a removal of this Gentile body of Christ, Jew and Gentile body of Christ, before the tribulation and the second coming. So like I said, this came to Paul. I mean, he says, you know, in, in, in 2 Corinthians 12, 1, it is not expedient for me, doubtless to glory, I will come to visions, plural, and revelations, plural. Paul was having visions and revelations. I mean, I don't know how often. But obviously, it didn't all come to him at the same time. When the mystery, when the when the mystery of the church came to him in Acts, uh, it was simply that the gospel, the grace gospel, was be was to be taken to the Gentiles. But obviously, he received more visions after that, and I believe those visions included the issues of baptism, the issues of the rapture, the issues of the second coming. Uh, all of those things. But it, but again, he was coming to visions. In 2 Corinthians 12, 7, unless I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of revelations, plural, that was given to me a thorn in the flesh. So Paul was did continue to receive revelation and visions. And as he began to receive these revelations and these visions, he, he began to pin these epistles, which are written to the church only. Romans through Philemon is written to the church, not written to the house of Israel. So again, um, I just find it interesting that the first epistles that he wrote were Thessalonians, which has to do with rapture, second coming, and Galatians, which has to do with the false gospel. And we've talked about that. The false gospel was a mixing the gospel of the kingdom with the gospel of grace. Um, in Galatians, let's see, Galatians uh, chapter 1, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. He's clearly talking about the grace gospel here, not the kingdom gospel, which is not another, but there are some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. And I say again, as I've said before, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than what you receive, let him be accursed. And he says, but I certify to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. In other words, I didn't receive this gospel from the apostles. I received this gospel from God himself. For neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by revelation of Jesus Christ. He's talking about the gospel of grace, the mystery that was revealed to him that had been hidden in previous ages. For ye have heard of my conversion in time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church. I actually wasted it, okay? But he separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me. And this whole argument here is that 
you can't mix the gospel of the kingdom with the gospel of grace. If you mix the gospel of the kingdom with the gospel of grace, you end up with no gospel at all. And yet that's exactly my contention, what most churches are doing today. They, they, in one side of their mouth, they're saying, you need to repent, you need to be baptized. But it's by faith and faith alone. Well, no, you just told me I need to repent and be baptized. You know, so how can it be by faith and faith alone? You know, well, if you truly had faith, you would do this. You know, we, we take those two gospels and we try to mesh them together. Not understanding that's not rightly dividing what happened. The kingdom gospel is different and unique. It was, teach, it was taught by the 12 and by Paul initially. But the grace gospel was only taught by Paul and those that he discipled, those that came after him. And again, people don't understand that and we don't get right division and everybody gets uh, confused. So, um, but interesting, I find that Thessalonians and Galatians were written first because God began to clarify these things to uh, the Apostle Paul. Um, and then notice, it, it's, it is hard to conclude that he received everything he needed to know at once. He most likely did not understand the totality of the postponement of the kingdom. You see, again, and again, I'm backing up uh, some of your new faces. The apostles taught that in Acts chapter number 2, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is hand. You've crucified your Messiah. What must we do? We need to do. You need to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven was the physical kingdom that God was going to bring. But you need to repent before he's going to do that. Now, if the nation of Israel had repented at the preaching of Peter, which was the first legitimate offer of the kingdom, Jesus never offered the kingdom. Jesus couldn't have offered the kingdom because Jesus had to be crucified first. The kingdom could not be offered until after he had been crucified and resurrected from the dead. It was only after that that Peter was able to legitimately offer the kingdom, thus fulfilling Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 31, and the kingdom would have come in if the nation of Israel had repented. But they didn't. They should have repented. And then, of course, you can't get away from the tribulation period, the time of Jacob's trouble. The seven year, the 70th week of Daniel had to have happened during Peter's lifetime. And then it would have culminated with the second coming of Christ and the establishment of the kingdom. Not a spiritual kingdom, a physical kingdom where the Davidic and the Abrahamic covenants would have been fulfilled in Peter's lifetime. And Peter preached that. Peter never stopped preaching that. The 12 never stopped preaching that. And when Paul was saved in Acts chapter number nine, he preached the same thing. And then God, when God revealed the revelation of the mystery to him, that salvation was going to go to the Gentiles, I don't think Paul knew at that point that that whole tribulation and kingdom was going to be postponed. It would be later that Paul fully understood that it wasn't going to happen in his lifetime. I hope that makes sense to you. If not, just back up, read my notes. They're all there. Um, so again, I don't think Paul totally understood the postponement of the kingdom, but he 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 begins to. Um, and I, I believe this is why he still moved in both Gospels. Either way, uh, he believed, we notice here that Lydia, as she believes, she's then baptized. She's not baptized first. And then salvation. She's saved and then baptism. Uh, many say she was the first convert in Europe. And I believe that Lydia had apparently, had apparently believed both the kingdom, that's why she was down by the riverside praying, and the grace gospel simply by the fact that, again, she was praying when Paul found her. But again, there's not enough evidence. But I believe she was a Jew that had already embraced the kingdom gospel. And then Paul comes along or at least knew something about it. And then Paul comes along and preaches a grace gospel to her. She believes and she's baptized. Now notice verse number 16. To reveal his son to me that I might preach him among the heathen. Immediately I can, well, I'm in the wrong book. Get back to uh, Acts here. Acts 16, verse number 16. And it came to pass as he went, as we went to prayer, a certain damsel possessed, 
with a spirit of divination um, met us, which brought her masters much gain by soothsaying. And the same followed Paul and us. Now notice he says us. Who's us? <laughs> I mean, that's obviously a, a reference to the author. Show us the way of salvation. And this did she many days, but Paul being grieved and turned and said in his, and said to the spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out of her that same hour. So notice again how Luke inserts himself into the narrative here. We see him in verse number 16 and we see him in verse number 17. In verse number 16, we. In verse number 17, us. This is Luke. Now, this young lady apparently brought income to her masters by pretending to tell the future. Now, I say pretending because the devil does not know the future. Therefore, the devil cannot foretell the future. Uh, the devil is not omnipotent. He is not omnipresent. Um, he, is, he is not what is it? Omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient. He doesn't know all. He can't be all. He can't, you know, I mean, he doesn't have any of the omnis. So he is incapable of telling the future. Now, does he have an inside track that we don't? Sure. Does he have a better track record in predicting it? Probably so, based upon the information that's around him that we don't have. Um, but anyway, she's pretending to tell the future here. Um, and because of that, she she's making a lot of money for her masters. We have child trafficking going on here, by the way. Uh, we see it in scripture. Um, but understand that all power comes either from God or the devil. All power comes from either God or the devil. There's only two sources. You'll remember in Pharaoh's court, as Moses did his miracles, the, the Pharaoh's magicians repeated them. Now, some would say they were mere illusions. I don't see that from the text. They were able to repeat Moses' miracles up to a point. So the devil does have power, but he's not. he does not have all power. He is a created being. He is not the opposite equal of God by any stretch of the imagination. Okay, he is not the yin and the yang. He is not the opposite equal of God. That is a lie. Um, either way, the devil is using her. And the interesting thing, I mean, she's, she's obviously demon-possessed, um, is that she was what she was saying was true. I mean, the whole time, I mean, everything she's saying about him, these men are the servants of the Most High God, would show us the way of salvation. That was true. But it, it was serving as a distraction, to Paul's ministry by her being repeating that over and over and over. Okay. And Paul realized very quickly that this was demonic and commanded the evil spirit to come out of her. Um, I, I stated this last week, but I, Paul never in his epistles really deals with the issue of demonic possession and let alone the casting out of these demons. We see that in another dispensation under the, under the law, but we don't see that under the, the grace, under grace. Uh, and I think too many in the church today spend too much time um, with, with an obsession over demon possession. And I've seen a lot of ministries destroyed over this. I've been in churches where people are called down front and I cast out the demon of drunkenness and the demon of fornication and the demon of, you know, and, and of course, when they're doing that, they're operating under the law. They're operating under, under, you know, the dispensation of the law, under the dispensation of the kingdom, if you will, um, not under the dispensation of grace or the dispensation of church, of the church, the body of Christ. So, Again, I mean, we are called to a ministry of reconciliation, not a ministry of casting out demons. If, if God would have wanted us to cast out demons, I think he would have given us 
specific instructions on how to do so, um, not just examples found in the Gospels of others doing so. Um, but anyway, that is will. Paul, uh, notice in verse number 18, did I get down to 18? Um, and this did many days, but Paul being grieved, turned and said to the spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And she came out of her that very same hour. And when her master saw that the hope of their gains was gone, they caught Paul and Silas and drew them into the marketplace um, with the rulers and brought them to the magistrates <clears throat> saying, uh, these men being Jews do exceedingly trouble our city and teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe being Romans. And the multitude rose up together against them and the magistrates ran off their clothes and commanded to beat them. This is obviously a Gentile city. It's a Roman outpost. Okay, it's not a Jewish city. And notice verse 23, And when they had laid many stripes on them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who, having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. So this is one, just one of many uh, times when Paul would suffer in his attempt to preach the gospel. Um, in 2 Corinthians chapter number 11, I say again, let no man thank me a fool, if otherwise yet as a fool receive me, that I may boast a little about myself, that which I speak, I speak is not after the Lord, but as it were foolishly in this confidence of boasting, seeing that many glory after the flesh, you know what, I'll glory also. He says, uh, down, down, he says, uh, for ye suffer fools gladly, seeing ye yourselves are so wise. Paul had the gift of sarcasm. I think I've got that too. Maybe some of you do as well. Um, for ye suffer, if any man bring you into bondage, if any man devour you, if any man take of you, if any man exalt himself, if any man smite you in the face, I speak concerning the reproach. He says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they a seed of Abraham? So am I. He says, are they ministers of Christ? I'm speaking like a fool. I'm more in labors, more abundant. I'm more stripes above measure. I've been in prison more times than all of you. I've even been close to death more than all of you. And then, and then notice, he says down in, in uh, verse number 25, he says, of Jews, I was five times received 40 stripes, save one. Thrice I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. I was shipwrecked three times a night and a day. I was floating in the deep. <laughs> I was in journeys and perils of waters and robbers and mine own countrymen and heathen and city and in the wilderness and in the sea and among false brethren in weariness and painfulness and watchings and hunger and thirst and fasting and coldness and nakedness. In other words, Paul's saying, you know what? I've suffered a lot. Um, and Paul did suffer a lot. For the gospel that he preached. Notice how Paul responded in the next verses. Look in verse number number 25. He says, And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, uh, and the prisoners heard them. You know, it takes a lot of courage to sing in despair. Nobody likes to sing in despair. Uh, but music is very important. Uh, in Judaism and in Christianity. It's our way of worshiping God in the good and the bad times. And God loves our worship of him. And I think he loves it even more so when it comes from a place of brokenness. Now notice verse 25. And suddenly there was a great earthquake and the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bands were loosed. So <clears throat> this would be the first of many times that God would supernaturally deliver uh, Paul. And this was obviously a supernatural event for what earthquake also makes bands fall off. <laughs> I really do struggle with people who constantly try to downplay the supernatural in Scripture. We serve a supernatural God. We serve a God that is supernatural. We serve a God that flung, that spoke the world into, into existence. Why would it be so hard to believe that he can't cause an earthquake and cause men's bands to fall off? 
Why is it so hard to understand that he could part the Red Sea and allow the whole Israelite nation to walk through on dry ground? What's so hard about that? Why do we have to downplay the supernatural for the natural? Because we are naturally men. We tend to think in the natural. But when you become a spiritual man, you don't have a problem with these things at all. My God is able. Verse 27, and the keeper of the prison, awaking out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. And he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas. So again, here we see the threat of life in regards to a Roman who was who was who had failed in his duties? <laughs> Rome was pretty tough when it come to uh, responsibilities of the Roman soldiers. It was life, excuse me, life for life. If we give you someone to watch, and you lose that person, you're going to pay for that with your life. Um, you remember when Jesus was risen from the dead? You know the they called the Roman soldiers in and say, listen. We're going to give you a huge sum of money, and you're going to say, while we slept, his disciples came and stole the body. Now, anybody who was familiar with Roman law during that time knew that that was a lie of the devil, because there was no way Rome would have let them off if they had fallen asleep and the body was stolen. It was life for life. Um, you remember Peter's guards in Acts chapter number 12. You know, <clears throat> now as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers that what had become of Peter. Remember the angel came in, kicked him, nudged him. Peter rolled over. He didn't know if he was awake or if he was asleep. And he walked out toward the gate and he realized that he had been delivered. And when Herod sought for him and found him not, he examined the keepers that they should be put to death. So they were killed as a result of Peter escaping. And that's the exact same thing that this guard is thinking. I'm going to die. Uh, so he immediately would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. And notice, <clears throat> and he came in and called for the Paul and them said, do yourself no harm. We're all here. And he called for a light. He sprang in. He came trembling, fell down before Paul and brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, this is another turn in scripture here. Notice the pronoun I here. The difference between the kingdom gospel is that it was a collective national gospel that the entire nation needed to respond to. You remember in Acts chapter 2, verse number 37, as Peter wrapped up his first Pentecostal sermon, and when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart, and they said unto Peter and to the rest, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Notice the pronoun, we do. But here, the Roman centurion says, What must I do? And then notice verse number 31, And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved and thy house. So notice also that Paul's response was nothing like Peter's back in Acts chapter number 2. In Acts 2.38, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, all of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. This is not a contradiction. It's simply a different program. God changes not, but the, his methods of dealing with man does. Okay? Um, it was simply a different program. Peter was preaching under the kingdom program. Paul is preaching under the grace program. There is no way you can convince me that these are not two different gospels. And when you get over to Galatians chapter number one, it makes total sense. And then notice, and thy house. You will be saved and your house. This does not mean that everybody in his house was going to be automatically saved if he got saved but that they could be saved. You can be saved if you will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you and your house. So again, that wraps up uh, our session today. Uh, that is session number uh, 28. And uh, 
again, I'm going to do something just a little different. I'm going to take Mondays off moving forward because uh, that's time with my bride. But Tuesday through Friday, 6.30 a.m., I encourage you, be on. And we're going to take 15, 20 minutes a day working our way through the book of Acts. And then on Sunday mornings, 9 o'clock, we'll put it all together in case you missed anything. So anyway, uh, I'll see you uh, Tuesday morning at 6.30 a.m. And again, I'm going to post all of this to DwayneSpearman.org if you want to check it out there. And you can see the links how to get to um, you, the YouTube video of this as well as the uh, SoundCloud audio version of this as well as the Apple podcast version of this. All that can be found on the website. So I do indeed hope you're enjoying our study through the book of Acts. I hope that you're being challenged. I am. Um, and again, we need to question the assumptions as we study the Word of God because there are just a lot of things that we have been taught in church that I have been taught in seminary that simply the Bible does not say that. So therefore, where the Bible is silent... We cannot speak with authority. Um, and so I know I'm challenging a lot of your assumptions, uh, but that's how we grow, by having our assumptions being challenged. So God bless you guys. Hope you have a great day. I appreciate all of you tuning in today. Scott, God bless you, my brother. I so appreciate you. Got to get, get down there and visit you. Donna and Lou, bless you guys as well. And Hope that y'all have a great day. And remember, God loves you, wants the best for you, and he's working all things out for our good.